0: This is the More to the Story podcast with Dr. Andy Miller.
1: We hope you guys enjoyed today's conversation.
0: I'm so glad you've come along today. This is a great episode with Dr. Matt O'Reilly talking about one of the challenges that comes, uh, questions that have come to me as a result of our podcast is that we have folks who have like an understanding of the egalitarian roles that people have in ministry. The denominations that are connected to Wesley Biblical Seminary and my denomination have like women in ministry generally, like, Generally, that's where people fall. And so the people who are my audience in this podcast are interested in thinking about that, but also at the same time are connected to evangelical circles where that's not necessarily included. So how did these two groups get along? Now we talk on this episode with Matt O'Reilly about complementarianism and egalitarianism. We still hold to a view that sees the important roles of complementing natures of the human body. But at the same time, like, how do we think about this? And how do we deal with the tensions that exist within the wider evangelical community? So I think you'll find this really interesting. I'm so thankful that Wesley Biblical Seminary allows me to have this podcast, and it therefore is a sponsor of this podcast. At Wesley Biblical Seminary, we are training trusted leaders for faithful churches. We have more than 250 degree-seeking students. We have close to 100 other students who are participating in our lay initiatives like our wesley institute the wesley institute is a nine-month program that takes people through every book of the bible in nine months it's a commitment that people do we we're getting ready to start that this coming fall but we're also starting a wesley institute two so the wesley institute one talks of, through every like teaches through every book of the bible but wesley institute two takes people through the fundamentals of christian theology so anyways we would love for you to think about that or just even being a student here at wesley biblical seminary we offer a bachelor's very a variety of master's degrees and then a doctor of ministry program as well. So check us out at wbs.edu. This podcast is also brought to you by Bill Roberts, and he's a financial planner. You can find his information on our show notes. He does a great job of helping people, particularly those who are in ministry, with thinking about how they can plan for their financial futures. Now, as you take a look at this podcast, it means a lot to me when people are able to take time. To subscribe and share this, particularly this content. I think this will be helpful as we work through the contours of women in ministry and what that means and how we go about interpreting texts from scripture. Finally, you can also get a free resource that I provide for people who join my mailing list at andymillerthe3rd.com. That's andymillerii.com. So you can go to the tab where you sign up for my email list. And when you do that, I'll send you a free four-page document that helps you plan through the process of interpreting scripture and moving to the place where you use your interpretation creatively in your own proclamation and teaching. So check that out at andymiller3rd.com. Thanks for coming to this podcast. God bless you. Welcome to the More to the Story podcast. I am glad that you have come along today. We have a great show in store for you and I have my friend Dr. Matt O'Reilly who is an adjunct professor here at Wesley Biblical Seminary. He helps lead our doctor of ministry program and the research portion there and Probably most importantly, he serves as a pastor of Hope Hull United Methodist Church in Alabama in the Montgomery area. Well, I said most importantly, Matt, I'm sure there's some other things that are more important to you, like your family.
1: (laughs) My family is is high on the list. Absolutely. The highest place on the list.
0: So I didn't mean to make your church the most important thing to you, but maybe I was saying your church and your uh, commitment to your calling there maybe is more important than even WBS. So we'll take that in.
1: Well, well uh i try to i try to find a way to hold uh, all of the various hats that i wear together in balance as what well, as much as i can so um but yeah they're all they they're important aspects of the way i understand my vocation as a pastor theologian yeah uh, yeah so well, that's, into- let's
0: talk about that for a second and, okay. and thanks so much matt for coming on i think you all are going to enjoy this podcast today where we're going to talk about You might have drawn you in by our title, but that's an important piece too, Matt like even how you respond to this is that you see your vocation as pastor theologian a lot of people say think there might be uh, two separate things there so what is a pastor theologian, or what is this discipline.
1: Sure sure so so. I'm a part of a, a group of pastors called the Center for Pastor Theologians, which uh, listeners may be interested in taking a look at that. Pastortheologians.com, I believe, is the address. You can Google CPT or Center for Pastor Theologians. And it's a group of pastors who have done usually advanced degrees of some sort or another. So, so there's some, some formal theological training. Uh, right. But instead of seeking the primary expression of that training in, in an academic setting, primarily, uh, we are committed to using our, our training and uh, gifts and the skills we've been been given through our training in the context of the local church. And the idea is uh, every every pastor functions as a theologian uh, in, in many ways. Right, right. Um, but not every pastor is necessarily a professional theologian uh, in the sense of academics writing books and things like that. Um, and so, so we, we, we at the Center for Pastor Theologians have some concerns about what seems to be a pretty strong division between the church and the academy. Right. Pastors don't think of themselves as theologians, even though it's the pastor's job. Let me, I should say pastors in general don't think of themselves as theologians. Right. even though it's the pastor's job to speak about God to the people of God on a weekly or even more frequent basis. Right. Um, and a lot of times the laity members of the congregation don't think of their pastors as theologians. Uh, I was with a group of laity not long ago and asked them, um, whether they thought of their pastors, whether they knew any theologians or whether they thought of their pastors as a theologian. And they'd indicated that I was the first one. There was a, there were, you know, one or two others who maybe kind of fit the mold a bit, but as far as like, like formally trained professional theologian writing things, they hadn't had a theologian for a pastor before. And, yeah. um, I think that, that we've sort of instantiated that really strong distinction and that it's not helpful. Um, right. so, so I would want to say we have academic clit theologians, uh, who, who, you know, who work in seminary settings or other academic settings who do crucial work. Uh, who have the time and the resources to do a lot of research that a pastor theologian is not going to do or not going right, to be right. able to do. Um, but on the other hand, in in a complementary fashion, I don't want the, I don't want us to see these two roles in any way as as antagonistic towards one another. Right, right, right. Taking one's role, but the pastor theologian is uh, or ecclesial theologians, how we might say. it. We've got academic theologians. Are theologians who work in an academic concept text and ecclesial theologians who are theologians who work primarily primarily in an ecclesial or church context and I'm not going to be doing the sort of uh, the same sort of research that many academic theologians will do with you know significant time in libraries or looking at primary sources and different kinds of things like that um, the the pastor theologian or the ecclesial theologian a lot of times is, is not simply translating theology into the local church, but is offering theological shepherding uh, at a serious level for the larger church, the local church and the larger church. So yeah. uh, one of the ways we talk about this, and this uh, has shaped a lot of our doctorate ministry research at Wesley biblical seminary, is we, we might think of this in terms of theological appropriation, for example. Yeah. So, so what are some of the issues that, that are on the front burner for the church, so to speak? What are really uh, issues where the church needs theological shepherding, where we need theologians to think through, um, like today, we're going to be thinking about the relationship between men and women and, 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 the, and how that relates to roles in ministry. Right. So that's a front burner issue. It's very much on people's minds. Um, and what does it look like? Or academic theologians to, to help us with that. But also, what does it look like for people who work in ministry context every day to help us think through that at a serious level and offer some theological shepherding? And and I think that the context is going to maybe give us a slightly different take on that. And just being in, in the ministry setting is going to kind of drive the way we come at that. And so right. we need to see pastors as theologians, um, even if they're not writing theologians, they're still preaching theologians uh, who are leading the people of God to think theologically. Yes, uh, And you're doing that whether you realize it or not. Um, I think to do it well, you probably need to recognize it right? And, and strive to speak well of God.
0: This is interesting. And this is the task that people enter into when they enter into the ministry. I, I've been found very helpful, particularly in 15 years of ministry, Kevin Van Hooser's description of of the public theologian, like Mm -hmm. the pastor's task in the community. I imagine you in Hope Hall are like engaging your community. Like I drove and visited your church a few weeks ago. Um, There's a, you know, gigantic uh, plant, like not far away. Well, you have something to say for, you know, for people who work in that plant, the way the society is structured there, Uh, being a public theologian. That was helpful for me as a Salvation Army officer who, you know, I had pastoral responsibilities for a congregation in an ecclesial context, but often much of my work was with city council members, board members fund- in a fundraising capacity, standing before planning and zoning commissions, these type of things. So I think these titles are helpful, and I appreciate what you've done to help put some bones to that. And you have your own kind of way of expressing this through your own online pra- platform. People can find you. Is it um, the Theology Project? Is it .com?
1: Uh, yeah, @theologyproject.online. Oh okay, gotcha. Yeah. So you can Matt find videos. O'Reilly.net. I'm sorry. mattoreilly.net will get you to the same place as well. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's great.
0: Um and and uh, that's kind of what brings us here today is uh, you had a response to something that's been an itch that I think a lot of people in my audience have had. Actually, people have reached out to me with the, ver- the very type of questions that you are answering or the tension point that exists within Broad evangelicalism. So that's what I. Let's get into that here. One of those challenges is is that we often find resonance in the evangelical world with people who come from a different perspective of us when it comes to kind of Wesleyan or Reformed Calvinist traditions. And that leads to some other other kind of distinctions that are made. While we might affirm the way that some folks in uh, Reformed traditions might speak of the authority of Scripture, maybe human sexuality in general, uh, the ne- necessity of conversion, all, all types of things like that, the thing that often comes up w- with some of these folks, like for instance, Denny Burke, Owen Strand, Albert Moeller, people who I have a lot of appreciation for in some some respects and some at varying degrees between them um women in ministry comes up and in wesley biblical seminary affirms the role of women preachers and as does like most of the denominations that we serve so you respond to this and i I imagine there's a little bit of tension in even just doing that in the first place so tell us about your what, what generated this response to these folks
1: yeah so so basically the way that this came along is um Owen Strand on Twitter tends to like to be inflammatory. Yeah. Yes. yes and, and, and what's interesting is he'll go and say things, but then he won't engage the responses. Uh, and he frequently blocks those who attempt to engage substantively with him, which he did with me. Um, and so so. there's an element where it's a bit frustrating. yeah. Because you make these kind of wild claims and then trained Credible theologians attempt to engage, and instead of actually engaging the arguments, you just block them online. Mm-hmm. It seems to be very unhealthy um, and very pastorally irresponsible. Wow! Mm-hmm. Um, and theolog—I just—it seems to me, seems to be embarrassing as far as the Christian faith goes. Yeah, like, sure. Like I want, I want our students right. to be able to engage seriously. Uh, at, at a robust level with charity and force mm. Um, mm. i don't want them to just just cancel people they, they disagree with them right like right. so so it was a little bit you know I, I've, I've seen that track record and then this comment came along and i forget exactly how it went but basically um one of the, the, the you know complementarianism and egalitarianism or ev- evangelical egalitarianism um are are these kind of different 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 perspectives on women in ministry and that it, it flares up online and in social media every so often. Uh, and it's had some particularly intense flare-ups here lately, particularly in relation to what's called first-order doctrines and second-order doctrines. Right. Um, so first-order doctrine would be something like the Trinity, the resurrection of Jesus, um creation of nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so the things that make you a Christian are not. <laughs> right, right. Right. If you don't believe in the Trinity, you, you're not a part of the Orthodox Christian faith. Right. So that's tier one. Second order or tier two doctrines are the sorts of things where like honest Christians disagree. And one of those is the role of women in ministry. So he- evangelical egalitarians like us would affirm fundamental complementarity between men and women. But we would say that gender does not prohibit ministry offices or, or roles. Right. So a complementarian would say uh, there's complementarity between men and women. So we agree with the, on that. Right. But they right. would also say that scripture forbids women from holding pastoral offices and teaching offices. And so that's where the conflict lies. So Strand, uh, Owen Strand came along and said something like, I'm, "I'm working from memory here, so I'll paraphrase something like, um, you know, even though women in ministry is a second second order doctrine." Um, that that we can't use that as an excuse for going soft on these sorts of things, and um, and those who this was the part that really got me those who affirm women in ministry and teaching roles egalitarians are denying the authority. Yeah. Of scripture.
0: They he said flatly denies biblical teaching.
1: Yeah, yeah. So you and
0: I, uh, people who work, at, we are a seminary. We in order to work a seminary, we affirm inerrancy according to Chicago's uh, statement. Um, and like pretty committed people around us, most of the time we're called the fundamentalists, right? And I'm, but yet we're being called this because we, we are this type of complementary roles, nevertheless, uh, uh, eat, like affirm the role of women taking pastoral office. We're yep. ones who flatly deny biblical teaching.
1: So that, that language set me off or sparked me, so to speak. If you're not <laughs> on when, you know, the notion that a position I hold is, is said to flatly deny biblical teaching. You know, I've said from the pulpit so many times, if I didn't believe that scripture was true and authoritative, I would get a different job. Right. I wouldn't get up at five o'clock on Sunday mornings yeah. to go and teach the Bible if I didn't think it was both true and authoritative. Yes. Uh, and so, so Strand's comment is just outlandish. Uh, it's misleading. Um, and, and it is slanderous. Right, it, mm. it's 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 a false claim in print, and so so I think we need to like there needs to be some accountability for that, and mm-hmm. so I decided to write uh to write a more kind of response, and, th- and there were some other things Denny Burke had written some 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 more substantive and more precise um, yes. precise articles about this recently. But even with his precision and nuance, far more than you get in a tweet, it still basically amounted to if you don't hold my view, you don't believe the Bible. Right, right. And-
0: yeah, so we we would affirm like it, there are there are matters where you can say that, but let's talk about then how we move to interpretation. I mean, that's part of like the next half. I don't want to jump ahead of you. Where you want to go somewhere else first? Well, I want I just kind
1: of want to make sure we're moving along in an agreed pace. So yeah, I think yeah. I think the crucial distinction then is we need to make a distinction between authority and interpretation. Um, so yeah. Burke, Stran, and some of the folks um, that they quote uh, like Leg Duncan who I appreciate a great deal in a variety of ways. Mark Dever. uh, I've had the chance to meet briefly and appreciate a lot of his work. I've learned a great deal from him about churches, Um, evangelism. I use his evangelism texts in in evangelism classes. Um, But on on this item, a lot of these guys kind of draw a pretty hard line in the sand and say something like, uh, if you don't agree with the, complementarian approach, you're rejecting the authority of scripture. And so the problem is there. there, it's a category mistake, right? We have two categories in play. One is the objective truth of scripture. And the other is yours, yours and my subjective interpretation of scripture. Right, right. right. So scripture is true objectively, regardless of what I think of it. Right. Right. I could think I could reject it altogether. I could affirm it altogether. I could pick and choose which bits I like and which bits I don't. My posture towards scripture does not change its objective trustworthiness. Yes. So like it's, that is something scripture is objectively true because it is given to us by God whose character is objectively true. Right. If we never existed, scripture would still be true. Right. Right my interpretation of scripture is subjective. That is to say, uh, it, is, it is derived from my experience, my reading of scripture, my understanding of the tradition, um, my, my, my best attempts to read these texts in their original context. I work, you know, I mean, take a New Testament degree. scholar. Yep. Yeah, I've taken an advanced degree in New Testament, to learn to, because I take the text seriously and want to uh, be able to interpret it well. So, so but, but, but my training is part of what I bring to the table to interpret, my ecclesial background is part of what I bring to the table to interpret, uh, my own experiences uh, are part of what I bring to the table to interpret, and that's true for folks who are in the complementarian side as well. They don't have some secret code object of interpretation that no one else has. Um, So Burke, Denny Burke, Owen Strand, their training is part of their subjective interpretation, their ecclesial background is part of their subjective interpretation. And and this is just part of the deal. We can't do anything about it. Um, so, So what we have to do is do the best we can with our interpretations, but it's a false move to go and say, my interpretation is the authoritative interpretation. Right. Uh, unless you have an ecclesial body or tradition that can make that claim. You know? So the Roman Catholic Church will right. give, the, give constituents of the Catholic Church the authoritative interpretation. The bishops are the living voice of the church. They can give Roman Catholics an authoritative interpretation. Same is true in Eastern Orthodox Church. In the United Methodist Church, which I'm a part, our discipline gives us authoritative interpretations to some degree. I mean, not Mm -hmm. to the same degree as the Roman Catholic magisterium, but each denomination, each ecclesial body has articles of faith or some sort of statement of faith that that interprets certain scriptures um, in specific ways. And so those are authoritative for the tradition in which you fall, but United Methodist interpretations you know, ecclesial interpretations are not authoritative for the Salvation Army or the Southern Baptist. Right, Army. right sure. So we have to think of these things in 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 relation. You're you're in, You can only get an authoritative interpretation in an ecclesial tradition where the members agree to submit themselves to the to the to the ecclesial body that defines the authoritative interpretation.
0: This for an great. individual,
1: go ahead. Oh, sorry.
0: So this is really good. And I imagine some people are going there already in their mind. So I just want to have to the relieve them or th- think through this um, as it relates to human sexuality. Yes. So like this is the big concern. OK, well, that's just your interpretation. But I think what I've said and, and correct me, if, correct me if you have a different way of nuancing this. If i say say that like those uh, authoritative communities, uh, authoritative bodies have affirmed throughout centuries of the Christian church the same view of human sexuality, as particularly as it relates to what sexual sin is. That this, yeah. And also the biblical monologue on the subject is incredibly consistent. There's not really a way to move outside of that without rejecting authority of scripture. So some people would say, well, here, Andy and Matt, you're critiquing the... The, these folks because of women in ministry and, but you're doing the same thing with sexuality. Um, do you think that, that, that I've made a good enough case that there's a distinction there?
1: Yeah. There, well, there's, if you just do it text by text, and that's, yeah. I mean, that's the way these things as a new Testament guy, that's my yeah. preferred way to do it. I think it's the right way to do it. If you just go text by text and and do the exegesis, right. It's not particular. I mean, it's pretty clear. The new Testament doesn't give a pathway towards the affirmation of same sex practices. Right, right, right. Um, and that's and, held by scholars who would have a different view. Yeah, so I yeah. mean, you know, you get people like Luke Timothy Johnson, right? Highly credible New Testament scholar. He affirms same sex practices. Uh, I mean, I don't want to over speak for him, but his he's you know he's he's a, on the progressive side of the issue. He just thinks, but he but he, but he thinks it's eminently clear that Paul condemned same sex practices right right he just thinks paul was wrong right so exactly so you know you do get you do get attempts i don't want to i don't want to commit a hasty generalization myself uh you do get attempts to sort of say that paul created space for the sorts of same-sex relationships we have today that weren't the same sort of thing back then i don't find those persuasive and i think pretty serious critiques of that has been done and done successfully um but, but if you look at the texts that involve women in ministry, and we can take a look at a few of them if you like, yeah. they're not even remotely as clear cut as the complementarians would want you to say. And people like Denny Burke, I think in the article to which I responded uh, a month or so ago. I'll post
0: ago, a, f- a link to that too in the show notes so you can yep. find Matt's article there. Yeah, keep going, Thank Matt. Sorry to that.
1: interrupt you. But, but, but Denny and some of the folks he quotes tend to say things like, well, you give a little on women in ministry, okay, but it's a slippery slope to you know, affirmation of full affirmation of LGBTQ, like all that. And I would want to argue, and I would point to plenty of evangelical New Testament scholars who argue that, that, that it's not a slippery slope. And they, they don't do that, right? You have plenty of folks who are thoroughly committed to trustworthiness of scripture, thoroughly committed to um, a, a traditional orthodox understanding of the complementing. Complementary nature of mer- Christian marriage. Uh, who affirm the full full role women in ministry in full roles? So it's not it's not like, oh, I'm that one guy who 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 hasn't fallen down the slippery slope. There's there are plenty of folks. Right, uh, and for, you list them example. in the article.
0: People who have been you know presidents of e- the president of Evangelical Theological Society. I exactly. mean, we could go down your mentor. I mean, Ben Witherington uh you could i mean we could just keep on going a long list of
1: folks Very and, Men and, and women. it happen
0: to be also in our traditions too a lot of times but not not exclusively
1: right yeah yeah i think eight of the past presidents of the evangelical theological theological society have been egalitarians which means wow. they affirm the inerrancy of scripture and they affirm full full roles for women in ministry so it seems to me just just altogether misleading to say that this slippery so, slope exists when there are literally dozens and dozens and dozens of people in the evangelical community, not just people, but scholars. I mean, there's plenty more outside the of scholarship, uh, but there are plenty of scholars you can go to for these things. There's plenty of people not slipping down that slippery yeah. soap. That's right. And, and it makes me think like, and that's why, that's why I was willing to take a rather aggressive posture in my, my essay is because people like Owen Strain and Denny Burke don't get to pretend they don't know about this stuff. Right. They're, they're both PhDs. Um, You know, Denny Burke is I think he's the president of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. They know the material. They know who the people are who are out there. If they if you know they they don't get to say, oh, I I haven't heard about those folks. Like it's easy to find. You can find them on Amazon. (laughs) The books are there in plenty. So right.
0: And and I think you and I would both say. We wouldn't say that they are not allowed to hold this position like they come to a different view than us and and they could be a part of organizations or denominations that do not affirm that that's fine. But let's not call people's evangelical street cred, you know, into question. That's right.
1: Yeah. And I I have plenty of friends who disagree with me on this who are complementarian. We love each other. We are friendly. We are charitable. We pray together. Uh, we mm-hmm. care for one another, our kids play together, right? It's not, it doesn't have to be an aggressive antagonistic relationship. Um, and in these days of, of just such deep conflict in our society and polarization, yeah, I would think that, you know, it would be better for those of us who are committed to the trustworthiness of scripture to, to say, you know, I don't agree with O'Reilly on these sorts of things or whoever. Right. Right. Um, but in this world of polarization and conflict, can't we, can't we focus on this? Can not we just give each other the benefit of the doubt on this one? Right, right. Um, so I wasn't so much arguing against complementarianism. I've done that before and I'll be happy to have that conversation. I was primarily in the SAU reference arguing against the posture. Yes. Uh, and, the, and what I take to be poor argumentative strategies that a couple of particular complementarians are taking
0: yeah and it's a pretty strong conclusion to this uh, essay that you wrote because you end with a sentence <laughs> sorry sorry I can't help but laugh a little bit but just to confess and repent I mean that's the call now it's like a it's a prophetic posture that you're taking but you you feel like there's a reason to make that call because they're they're really calling into question um, somebody else's, like the foundation for their, their life and ministry.
1: That's right. That's right. So here's, here's, here's an example. So I teach, I teach my students um, to represent those with whom they disagree as ably and as, as accurately as possible. So we're Wesleyans, if they're writing something on Calvinism, I don't want them to, to, or to, to, to commit the straw man fallacy with Calvinism. Right, right, right. You, you give me the absolute best version of the other view as you possibly can. Because if you give me a weak version of it, your argument won't be credible, right? You've got to argue against the real thing. Uh, one, 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 one scholar, I forget who it was, one professor said, give me a steel man, not a straw man. There you go. Right? Argue against a steel man, not a straw man, right? So for Burke and Strand to say people like us uh, reject the, tr- tr- the authority of scripture um, and are, are fuzzy on its truthfulness, then that like that's a straw man, because yeah. that's not how that's not like we work quite we work hard to have a robust view of the trustworthiness and the authority of scripture. And so when they go and attribute things to us that we don't actually hold, they're committing a straw man fallacy and it undermines and, and, and it undermines it undermines their credibility. Uh, the issue with, with this particular debate is these guys know better <laughs> Right. They're not they're not novices. They're not rookies. This isn't their first the first time they've argued this debate. They know who Ben Witherington is or they should uh, because he's been writing on this for decades. Right? Lucy Peppiett, Lynn are like Craig Keener. There are plenty of folks who have written on this who affirm the truthfulness of scripture and disagree with them. And so so it's mis- the reason that I took a rather more prophetic posture calling them to repent is because I think they're just lying they're committing they're, is right. they're misleading people they are acting right. deceptively um, and that may seem like a strong statement but I think it's true right um, you know and, and you get this tone in in Burke's argument he says well these folks say they affirm the authority of scripture but they don't really right that's that's a lie just not true. Right, right.
0: I appreciate you hitting this, Matt. And what I want to do, I want to get into actually some of the passages and we'll talk about this more. You can actually look at, I'm sorry, I have a lawnmower outside my office right now. So if you hear it, please forgive me, folks. I'll just try to keep talking here. I have leaves bursting all up in my windows and that kind of thing. So um, could you present, thinking of that, the steel man view, the charitable view, what's the charitable view of their position? Kind of like in a summary, like two to three minutes. And then sure, let's get sure. let's go let's look at like maybe at one Corinthians 12 and 14 and we'll look at some of those after that. But let's what's yeah. the steel man?
1: So so for the complementarian, one Timothy uh, chapter two, is really the crucial text. Uh, there are some others that are important, but this one is is particularly significant. And it's it's trend, the New Revised Standard Version translates it this way. Um, it's one Timothy two eleven. Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And so the argument is, Paul says very clearly that women shall not teach or have authority. And uh, folks like Don Carson and Tim Keller argue that that's not two things, it's one thing. It's exercise authority by teaching right is how they would put it um and so so you you know so so you hear folks say things like you know how you can go and take this commandment a woman shall not teach exercise authority by teaching and think that it's okay for women to be pastors and teach and have pastoral authority you've just cast this verse aside right you might as well rip that page out of your bible Um, and so 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 that's the argument um, just in summary form, yeah. The, the problem with that is that it doesn't take into account the problems in this text. Right. For example, the word that Paul uses for authority here isn't the typical word he uses for authority. Um, the word he uses for authority here only occurs one time in the entire New Testament. It's called it's a uh, it's it, it's a hop-ox legomena. It it occurs here and nowhere else. And the difficulty with that is. The way that we will figure out what words mean is we'll say, all right, here's Paul, and he uses the word for righteousness in all of these places, and so let's put them all up, put them all up and go through and get a sense of the semantic range, yes. of what they can mean different times in different ways, whether it's talking about God's own righteousness or my righteous status before God, different places, that word can mean different things, and that range will give us kind of some options, and then we'll go to specific texts and try to figure out which one of those options works in which text. Well, in this instance, you don't get a semantic range because you only have the word showing up one time, not only in Paul, but in the entire New Testament. No one else uses this word. And so we don't get, it's not his typical word, right? So if Paul were sort of, so, sort of barring women from typical authoritative teaching, wouldn't we expect him to use the normal word he uses for that? Uh, and in this instance, outside of the New Testament, the word he uses here typically has negative connotations. Mm-hmm. So it's more uh, usurping authority that doesn't belong to you, those sorts of things. And so my, my suggestion is what we have here is you have, first of all, it, it would be unusual for women to be sitting at the feet of men learning anyway. Uh, that's a, that's a, a student posture. You know, a rabbi would gather his students around him right. and in the Jewish context and teach them a man teaching men. You wouldn't typically have women in that in that setting, um, and so the very fact that the women are in this place learning strikes me as as atypical anyway, right. and sort of countercultural, subversive for the yeah. for the first century Greco-Roman world. And and then you have this instance where, and, and, and so my suggestion is, is these women are probably being taught in preparation to be teachers but they need to finish their instruction first and not usurp authority that they haven't been trained for beforehand. I think that's a right. coherent reading of this text. The the complementarian will also say, well, the problem with that O'Reilly is that Paul lodges this in the creation order. Adam right. was created first. Eve was created second. So that's an authoritative structure. Um, he was created first. She was created second. And she was deceived. The thing about that is though, is it's, it's not quite, it's not quite an argument from, Priority, right? It's an argument based on how the deception came about. And if you go back and look at Genesis, uh, in Genesis two, Adam gets the command not to eat the fruit before Eve is created. And then when the serpent asked Eve, "Did God really say not to eat the fruit?" Remember, she wasn't there when the command was given. She says, "He said don't eat it, and he also said don't touch it." Well, he never right, actually right. said don't touch it. He just said don't eat it. So the question that the text invites us to ask the question: Where did where did that where did that bit come from? Where did that extra prohibition come from? And it seems to me a a, a thoroughly appropriate conclusion to say that Adam was entrusted with instructing, like with transmitting God's word to her. So God gives his word to Adam and it's Adam's job to teach Eve. And if he had taught her well, she wouldn't have been deceived. She would have been prepared for to do battle with the serpent, right? Mm -hmm. But because he failed to transmit God's word like accurately, he set her up for, for deception and failure. She touches it. Everything seems fine. So she eats it and then he eats it and they fall. Right. So the issue isn't, does the first person have some sort of ontological inherent authority? The issue is how did the deception come about? Hmm. And the appeal to the creation story isn't about ontological authority or inherent male authority. It's about how, how Eve was deceived. Right. So, so Eve was deceived because she hadn't been given the full, te- the accurate teaching. And is that analogous to the argument of what's happening in 1 right, Timothy? That these women need to have that full teaching. They need, yeah, they need to get the whole story before they're ready to teach. Right. And so they shouldn't negatively usurp some sort of teaching authority before they're prepared. Right. I think that makes better sense of the creation. Uh, Paul's appeal to the creation story uh, in light of what we actually get in 1 Timothy.
0: That's good. So, I mean, we weren't even going to go to that passage, but I, I appreciate that because I like you're able to present that in a way um, that was, again, a good example of the way of dialogue. There, a charitable way of presenting their view. Now, of course, they're going to disagree. There'll be diff- disagreements. But um, let, let's jump to 1 Corinthians um, 2 because, like, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, women should re- remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. Yep. Um, and there's this interesting comparison with other places, too, even within this letter. So help us with that, Matt.
1: Yeah, so a lot of times when I write or, or speak about these things, people will, will quote 1 Corinthians 14, 34. Women should be silent. How can you be a pastor if you're supposed to be silent? Right. And the, the trouble with that, again, is not reading it in context. So so Paul says, first, first of all, the question is, what's an issue in 1 Corinthians 14? And the issue is orderly worship, not who the pastor is, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's a false step initially to go and take a text that's written about how to maintain order in worship and then extrapolate something out about pastoral offices. That, in my view, is a really bad interpretive strategy. You can make the Bible say anything you want it to say if you take things out of their context. So so Paul isn't even asking the question, who is the pastor here? Nobody said, are women allowed to be pastors? The question is is if there's a disruption, if a woman disrupts the orderliness of the service, how do we proceed? We'll come back to that in just a second. Um, so in the larger context, if you go back to 1 Corinthians 11, Paul yeah. says in verse 5, any woman who prays or prophesies with her head un- unveiled, disgraces her head. We won't get into head coverings in this one. That's a big issue in itself. My point is simply to say in First Corinthians 11, right. Paul acknowledges that women do indeed speak in the gathered corporate worship, right? Praying and prophesying, right? So praying and then prophesying would be some sort of exhortation in the language of the people, yes. Um, not speaking in tongues, but a, but a, but an understandable teaching, instruction, exhortation uh, on God's behalf as a in some prophetic role, right? So so whatever Paul means in First Corinthians. 14 saying women shouldn't speak does not mean women shouldn't speak in every circumstance right right because he's already given us two circumstances in which women are permitted to speak right right and prophesying so you cannot read first corinthians 14 as this universal objective unqualified rejection of female speech in church right that's not what it is Um and 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 there's another 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 point to be made as well. Uh, and Lucy Peppiat makes this point in some of her work on First Corinthians, which I I would give give listeners a link to her work. Spectacular. Um, Women in Worship in Corinth. But but she makes the point, you know, do do these great you know, first or first century Rome is a patriarchal society. And let's say let's just let's just play a little mind experiment, thought experiment here. Let's say there are some rowdy women, right, who are just making a lot of noise and disrupting the worship service. Do we really think the Corinthian men are so weak that they have to take the time to write a letter to Paul to, to, you know, which will take time to get it written weeks to get it delivered time for him to compose a response weeks to get it sent back. Like, and they're going to go on weeks and weeks and weeks and months and months waiting for Paul to tell the women to be quiet. Hmm. Like that's, that's not even a remotely reasonable hypothesis, right? A man in the first century, if he wants a woman to be quiet, will tell her to be quiet. Yeah. He's not gonna write somebody in another city and ask him to do that for him. So, so, and a lot of people think that's what's happening here. Like the women are going crazy and the men are like, what do we do? And that, like, that's not a plausible hypothesis. What is a plausible hypothesis? Well, it's, uh, Pepe makes this argument. She says, it's possible that, that Paul is here quoting his opponents. Hmm. It's not Paul who says a woman must be silent. It's the Corinthian opponents who say a woman must be
0: silent. Interesting.
1: Uh, and 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 here and, and the difficulty is Koine Greek in the first century didn't use quotation marks. So it's hard for us to know, right? But the Corinthians would know if Paul were uh were 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 summarizing their position or not. So the question then becomes well, how do we how do we how do we discern these quotes? And and all New Testament scholars agree that Paul quotes his opponents. Right. In, first Corinthians uh in my work on Paul and the resurrection I deal with that to some degree I push back against the consensus about the length of the quotation in first Corinthians 6 12 through 20. All right so all New Testament scholars agree that Paul quotes his opponents in first Corinthians. What we Let me can't, jump
0: in here uh, to give yeah. you another podcast where we talk about this exact same thing yeah. we had Dr. Isaiah Allen on to talk about Titus and yep. he did his dissertation on the statement for about the Cretans always being lazy gluttons. Yeah. That sort of thing. And it's the same thing. Like he asserts that what's going on here, it's a quote, like they would even say something like this. Um, they would even say like that you're this way, you lazy gluttons, that type of thing. Yeah. So anyways, this is, I just wanted to highlight, if people are interested in that idea, go back
1: to my interview with Isaiah Allen. Okay, keep going, Matt. There's a lot of great stuff on this. So everybody agrees that Paul quotes his opponents. We, what we don't agree on is, the extent to which he quotes his opponents and where right. he quotes his opponents. And so Pepiot argues that one of the ways you can, that the, the, the ancient, ancient authors would indicate that they were quoting someone else is like, if it stands in direct contrast with something they've already said. Yeah, sure. Right? So if Paul says something that seems contradictory to something he's already said, chances are in one instance, he's quoting someone else. And mm-hmm. just a few minutes ago, we noted that in First Corinthians 11, Paul talks about occasions when women speak in worship. Right. So that this, this, this almost unqualified declaration that women must be silent seems to at least stand in tension with that, if not contradicted, which is at least, which is evidence that we should at least consider the fact that this may not be Paul's words at all. Yeah. He may be quoting his opponents. Um, and so... Here, here's, the, here's the thing for me, Andy. Complementarians tend to treat these texts as eminently clear open and shut cases. And the problem is 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 11 and 14 are some of the most problematic texts in the New Testament. Wow. You grab a commentary, a, 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 you grab a critical commentary on 1 Corinthians and you read the sections on 11 and 14 and any scholar worth her or his salt will acknowledge that there are manifold difficulties textually and exegetically with interpreting these, these texts specifically. And then for, for me then, the question then becomes, am I comfortable telling right. half That's of the church, right. you're not qualified. Or even a third on, of the church. Yeah. Yeah. The women your sense of call is invalid based on some of the most problematic and difficult texts in the entire canon of scripture. Yeah. And that to me yeah. just seems irresponsible um, and wrong. Yeah.
0: Amen. This is so, so interesting. And, and you're not denying anything about the differences that people have that men and women have uh the complementary nature of the human body or anything like that this is like just saying like there's not really a good foundation to question people i think that that's and i I hope people can walk away like even if we're not sorry i mean matt you could you could be a full-out complementarian and present this view present this same, write this same article, because what we're trying to say is this is not a healthy approach within evangelicalism to come amongst people who share the authority of scripture to come at it this way, to be able to say these controversial texts that have vast problems is not a way to uh, be the ruler, like, uh, like thinking of like a ruler or like a guide or a canon for how we think about these passages.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I I remember my PhD professor, Andrew Lincoln, said to me one time, he said, it's not a problem to name the problem. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like these are 2000 year old texts written in a language that isn't in use anymore um, in the same way. And there are like there are difficulties with that. Yeah. yeah. It's not. It's I mean, (laughs) it's hard work. Right. And so and 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 for me part of taking the Bible seriously means being honest when the Bible is difficult. Right. right. If there are textual variants, if there are exegetical difficulties, if there are places where there's tension, like I don't want to say pastorally, I don't want to say the congregation this is absolutely crystal clear, no questions asked. Right. I want to say, you know what? God has given us the scriptures and in his wisdom he's done it through this process of revelation and canonization, and he's done it providentially, and we have it in our language. But that doesn't mean there aren't difficulties. Right? Doesn't mean there aren't problems. It doesn't mean that he does that God doesn't expect us to approach this with some humility and some charity. Right. And I think just sort of pretending the problems don't exist, or saying, "Well, some people think those are problems, but they're not really," is just really dishonest. And yeah. in my view, a person who won't acknowledge exegetical difficulties really isn't taking the Bible seriously at all. Wow. Yeah. Good point. And it's a good
0: reason for it to be a, a secondary issue, like a secondary exactly, or tertiary
1: issue. Like that's exactly why it's tier two, tier three. Because you, know, it's you, you,
0: you bring up the text a few weeks ago. We had our other colleague, David Schreiner, on, Dr. David Schreiner, to talk about um, haram in the in uh, Joshua uh, the for totally destroy totally devote devote to the band and he was just saying like look with this word i would a a student would get a good grade for me if they said you know god haram them you know like like in this case like that's a good translation because it's really a hard thing to get to what the actual meaning is like real and this is why in, in most translations that you have we if you get to it and you look down if if you see like a little footnote and there's all kinds of words. It means like it could mean these Sometimes those things are completely different because of textual traditions. This doesn't underscore or underrate the authority of scripture, but we just need to recognize problematic passages when yeah. they come about. And we can then trust that God is going to lead us and direct us. We use other methods for being able to get to
1: meaning. Yeah. And that's not to say that we can't understand the Bible. And it's not right, to say right. that only scholars are the ones who get to do it. Right, right, right. The, right. the, the church is, an, is a community of people who read scripture together, laity, clergy, scholars, uh, popular level readers, um, you know, and, and we do our best together and yeah. we each bring something to the table. Uh, we don't want an elitist kind of academic thing where only the people who read Greek get to say what the Bible means. Right, right, um, right. But we do want to be honest about what we're dealing with in the Bible and take that seriously. And so like that's 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 kind of where I am on it. Um, and and it, se- it seems to me, that and it happens frequently. People will say, like a YouTube video about egalitarianism. People will just say, "It's clear women can't speak," or "It's clear women can't teach," and it's not clear at all. Yeah, those those texts are are are, are complicated. Yeah, and difficult. And we well, and sure. if we if we respect the Bible, we should be honest about that.
0: Yeah, honestly, different interpretations. Matt, thanks for taking time to, uh, to work through this complicated issue. And um, and again, if you like what you hear here, uh, I would encourage you to go to wbs.edu, where you could study with Dr. Matt O'Reilly sometime. Now, he's not a full-time professor here, but he does teach regularly as an adjunct and in our DMIN uh, course as well. And, and we have many people who might be interested in working through a DMIN,
1: and Matt helps guide that process as people work through their dissertation. Yeah, you got one more thing? I'll plug the d program this way. If you like what you heard about the pastor theologian role, yeah, and you want to be the sort of pastor who can lead your church theologically, uh, then our Doctor of ministry will be of interest to you. So Amen. check it out.
0: Yeah. And Matt, I'll have one question with you here. Uh, I generally ask people, what's more to the story for you? Like a lot of times, like people might know you a little bit, maybe they know you on Twitter, but tell us a little bit more about Matt O'Reilly. That's something that maybe people don't know.
1: Oh, I love to play the guitar and oh. I do it as much as I can, which isn't as much as I'd like. Interesting.
0: Now, I thought we were going to hear something about Auburn or something like that, but you're certainly an Auburn fan, right?
1: Uh, Auburn basketball is rocking and rolling. Auburn football has got a ways to go.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we'll see what happens in the tournament. One of my favorite times of the year is coming up soon, and you guys are positioned better than uh, my Indiana Hoosiers at the moment, but we'll see what happens. We will. Thanks, Matt. God bless you. Lots of fun. Thanks.